Welcome to the Data Brilliant Podcast with me, Joe Dos Santos, Chief Data Officer at Click. In this series, we explore how data is reshaping and redesigning the future of our business and personal worlds. From business leaders to educators to public figures, we'll be joined by experts who will give us a fresh perspective on the world through data. Today's episode will focus on the business of data and the key data trends of 2021 that will shape how businesses maximize the impact of data and analytics in their business outcomes. I'm joined by two guests to help us explore this future. Susan Linnell is IT Enterprise Data Management Lead at Novartis, one of the major players in the medical, pharmaceutical, and life sciences industry. And my second guest is my colleague, Dan Summer, an ex-Gartner analyst and global market intelligence lead at Click, who drives our trends forecasting. Welcome to you both. So let's uh, talk a little bit about the future of data scientists. You know, so I think that you know, in uh, in 2012, there was the uh, Harvard Business Review article that called it the sexiest job of the 21st century, and they described these skills around mathematics times com- computational skill times being a PhD in math times all these different things around business acumen, and it seems like really what's starting to happen is as data science simplifies that the storytelling skills are more important, that the collaboration skills, the softer side of data science. I wonder if you could each comment on on what makes for an effective data scientist in 2021. Let's start with you, Dan. Yeah, sure. So a number of things. I think it's still the sexiest job of the 21st century. The bar is just constantly rising for what constitutes a top-notch data scientist. Like, let's look at machine learning, uh, and all of those aspects, you're pretty much going to be hoovered while you're still in academia. And uh, most people don't even get a uh, don't even get to graduate before they're recruited for very very good salaries in in big tech. So that clearly goes to show that it is a, a top job still. I also think that uh, that point that you raised, Joe, though, is so important because. It's we see this shift, right, where data scientists used to do a lot of coding. And now a lot of that can be automated with things like AutoML. And that allows a lot more, uh, essentially, time to think about how to apply those algorithms to business contexts. And I, contexts, and I think that is a big change because I think the demands therefore require that you have much more of a business context to uh, to apply to those algorithms, which will be a, a kind of a key critical skill that data scientists are looking for. And then finally, I also think that advanced analytics kind of needs to evolve, especially in this crisis situation, right? One of my best friends is a data scientist, and he, he told me that normally he does really long time series. He does regression models that goes years back, and he removes outliers so that uh, it smooths out the models and that works in calm markets, but it doesn't work right now when you have lots of randomized data coming in and things don't look like normal. So I think data scientists kind of need to take different approaches to adjust to that as well. Yeah, this idea of being uh, data literate as a way to provide business context is so critical. Uh, I think that, you know, it's funny, people coming out of school have the ability to do regression analyses and, and even neural networks, but they don't necessarily always have the acumen to understand if something's relevant. And I agree with you. I think that the where we're going to head is to shift away from being able to execute an algorithm, but to 
should shift to what does it mean? How do I use it? Is it even ethical? Right? So does the algorithm suggest something that is actually not really something that we'd be able to operate in the business based on business policy, business justification, et cetera? So I agree with you. I think we need to have more of a business-headed data scientist. What about you, Susan? What's, uh, what's the recipe for success for a data scientist for you? Yeah, I think a data scientist really needs to have some business knowledge. They're going to be sitting next to the business trying to capture what is the problem they're trying to solve. So they really need to understand a little bit about the business and try to extrapolate to figure out what is the problem, what kind of analytics or algorithms do I need to apply to this. They'll also need to have access to data on demand. They need to have data available so they can perform their their analytics But they'll also need the ability to be able to integrate quickly with new data that becomes available. We're continuing to see more and more data becomes available every day, and our data scientist needs to quickly be able to get that data and integrate it with the other company data. Yeah, let me just add to that. I think uh, I I just wanted to say I think Susan brings up a great point here of the availability of more data. It's like this huge gold mine that hasn't been untapped until just recently. That was also one of my trends in the latest uh, report that we did. The access and and ability to synthesize more what we call alternative data. So that could be photo, uh, it could be video, it could be just more unstructured text. There is so much insight there. I mean, if we investment firms have been using this for a long time, but I think the COVID crisis, in combination with just more technology. Uh, more machine learning that can just crawl those huge unstructured data uh, sets allows just much more mining of of different data sets. I think this is a truly, truly revolutionary thought that the 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 bottleneck for analytics is shifting away from the math and into the data. You know, in a world in which we're all kind of using the same algorithms and the same libraries, the winners and losers of analytics will really be the people that have more data to choose from. Right. And and Kaggle competitions have repeatedly shown this. They've shown that, you know, the same algorithms running against different data sets will produce different results. So the winners and losers will really be about who's got the data. Um, I wonder, Susan, if you could talk a little bit about what the what the Novartis focus looks like on that. How how are you trying to make that data more available to those data scientists? Yes, as you mentioned, you know, we really are trying to make our data available for our users on demand based on their role. And it's a real focus in 2021. Our vision is users will be able to easily tap into the wealth of our data of the company and derive insights. But to do that, there's some things that need to be in place. We need to have a way that we can find the data in a common view. It needs to be accessible in alignment with the company policies and controls. The data needs to be interoperable in a standard format so it can be reused. And then finally, it needs to be available in a reusable environment for the users to use and do their algorithms. I love this idea of the data production that results in something that's a catalog. Uh, But what you're describing is a really kind of uh, process by which the catalog itself embeds the security that's available to those people and reduces the barriers to getting that data. Is that kind of how you're thinking about it? Yes, for sure, is that every piece of our data will be available in a catalog, and they'll have certain controls on the access to their data. Even viewing it in the catalog, there might be controls based on what your role is in the company. Then to get access to the data, there'll be the appropriate controls in place aligned with our policies, because similar to your analogy, data and what your role is, you'll have different, different controls of what you need to do to access the data. Yeah, the, there's so much opportunity there. It, 
I mean, I was a Gartner analyst, as you mentioned there, before joining Click. And, you know, the holy grail was being able to certify data, having watermarking. And I think, uh, you know, having a catalog that can do that is is just such a huge, huge way of reaching that goal. Uh, if you can certify the data and also kind of like Susan mentioned, certify people, whether that's, uh, you know, you can, you can have driver's licenses or you can just have... Uh, you're allowed to to use the software because you've taken this online class. The the levels can be uh, set at different stages depending on your industry. But if you can certify the data, you can certify the people and what I call certify the ideas, i.e. the applications that you've built. Then you can have this bi-directionary flow from an individual coming up with something really cool that goes through these hoops and can become an enterprise app and vice versa. These enterprise app apps that reaches a much bigger audience. So let's double click on this certification idea, because I think it's really quite something. Uh, The business has often been trained to kind of believe in this idea of something being a, a certified or authorized truth. And sometimes the world is a little bit messy out there. So for instance, if you just Googled when's Matt Damon's birthday, you might have different sites that don't quite all agree. And you kind of figure it out from there. And Dan, you talked about how we're really trying hard to incorporate so much data out there. You know, there's a famous uh, MIT technology review study that said the world is doubling in the size of its data every two years, and we're using less than 1% of it. So how do we how do we kind of reconcile those two concepts? How do we onboard data that we don't know when there's so much of it? And, and balance that with the idea of certifying the, all the data that people want to have. Yeah, so that's a really, really interesting um, question that you're asking and something I've been mulling for some time, frankly. And I, I have something called the Dalai model, which is kind of Dalai Lama, right? Uh, you achieve data then if you... So that's a sort of shorthand for thinking about it. And, and each letter there represents something. And on the data side... I think just mapping out, governing, and certifying data sets is hugely important. Uh, And I think you should focus. You can't focus on all of the data. Focus on the sensitive data. Focus on the stuff that will get you in trouble if it gets out into different places. And then work your way out from there. But have a culture of trust where people can access more data and they they, um, would have to do something bad for that to be taken away from them. Of course, that looks a little bit different in different industries as well. But I would start focusing on the most sensitive data and work myself out of there. <laughs> I uh, I am very interested in in achieving a Zen uh, a Zen state of data. So um, any counsel you can give on that front would be greatly appreciated. Um, Susan, how does how does that resonate with you with respect to the idea of of data that is in different kinds of state and its applicability for different kinds of users in your organization? It really resonates. And as I was said previously, is you know the controls based on the type of data, the classification of the data, it'll be treated differently. We are continually getting new data each day from external sources, internal sources, and we need to link the data together so people can obtain the assets that they want, the insights from looking at that data and running their algorithms. So companies like ours, as well as many other companies, are really transitioning from an organization that just consumes data to one that really treats it as a strategic asset. And the asset is controlled, it's monitored, has the right quality and governance. And so in that respect, let me ask you a philosophical question, Susan. 
Is, uh, is the role of governance then changing from being something that is somewhat bureaucratic and presenting obstacles to something that is in the business of generating that uh, supply chain for the business? Totally. Really, for us to have data available on demand, there needs to be governance in place. And governance includes the catalog, the content of the catalog, the controls. And if data is available on demand, the users will be able to have shorter intervals to access the data, it'll be of higher quality, can be reused, and they'll create their insights sooner and generate business outcomes. So governance, catalogs, and the processes that go along with them are the enablers for us to accelerate the use of data to generate business insights and outcomes. That's such an important point. I I always think about my role as um, if I present myself as the savior of trying to protect data that is not very interesting. If my role is the wind beneath the wings of the analytics community, then I'm a hero. So uh, I'm going to choose path B every single time. Um, Dan, what does the Dalai Lama say on this front? Uh, so how do we start to think about data governance within the context of analytics in your in, in your outlooks? Yeah, so the Dalai Lama is a very wise man. And what he says on, on that aspect is essentially that you have to also focus on analytic governance as much as you have to focus on on data governance. I think many people have let that one go a little bit. Uh, we've come some way for data governance, but analytic governance will be increasingly important. And that's why, for example, black box and unhinged algorithms can sometimes do more harm than good. Dan, that's such a good point. At the end of the day, we need to not only manage the data that's being presented to the users, but we need to be able to manage the algorithms themselves, the dashboards themselves, so that there's a freshness to these insights, but also a careful ability for us to manage and track them so that it's not just black magic that's producing these insights, but really kind of a thoughtful process for distributing insights to the business. Is that part of a generalized framework that you're seeing take hold? Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, people speak about, for example, alg- algorithmic marketplaces, and it's just behind the maturity curve uh, of, you know, all the tools and methodologies available for data governance. But I think increasingly, we'll, we see more of that. That's great. I'd like to change focus a little bit to how people will consume data in the future and use it. Uh, so we spent a lot of time here, which I love, talking about how we produce the data for making it available. But let's start talking about what's going to happen in terms of how people use that data. So Dan, I wonder if you could take us through uh, what are some trends with respect to how people will will use the data in the future? Well, I think there's new opportunities opening up, frankly. Um, And much of it is because of the trends in the industry. So we clearly see that data and analytics are increasingly coming together. That's one aspect of how it opens up new opportunities of using data, because there's going to be many more kind of overlaps in that Venn diagram between the data producers and the data consumers, which means that we can get together way earlier and uh, collaborate, uh, discuss the business logic, discuss the metadata. uh, And that's going to bring some self-service, kind of what we've done on the, let's say, BI visualization side, much, much earlier in the value chain. So that's one piece. I think another way we will increasingly start using data is just embedding it into the business process. And Susan was talking about this early on as well. 
We have had business process modeling and business process managing for decades. What's really exciting and what I see now is increasingly embedding analytics into the operational process. And that's done through not only modeling the process, but increasingly mining, automating, and even optimizing the process through technologies like process mining, robotic process automation, and embedded analytics. And what that could do longer term is essentially shift it on its head where uh, analytics is no longer an afterthought to the process, but it will actually create and build the process. And business leaders that need to do more with less will, I think, really look forward to that evolution. It's a really interesting point. And I think in your in your outlook, you've described this as the uh, the way that analytics needs to look different and how it will move beyond the dashboard to really drive these processes. Um, Susan, I wonder if we can get that away from a kind of an abstract context into some real business impact. So, you know, in your organization, the decisions that are made are sometimes life and death decisions. Um, I'm sure that we've all heard that uh, COVID has been a big driver for some digitization, automation, and, and acceleration. Um, I wonder if there are examples that you can think of where you're trying to use data and analytics uh, for the driving of some outcomes and how that has kind of migrated beyond the dashboard, if you will. Yeah, so one of the things, as was mentioned by Dan, is that we're really looking at how do we integrate analytics and data into our end-to-end business processes. Look at what's happening in the value chain, run analytics on the data at certain points, and then drive future decisions. We're also putting in place automation of some of our processes based on the data and some of the analytics on it to really optimize our business processes. That's amazing. And um, and so do you have some specific key wins that you've been able to see in 2020? And have they largely been driven at all by the pandemic? I think the pandemic accelerated some of our real-time capabilities. If you look at in our enterprise, we accelerated deploying collaboration tools across the company with our customers, uh, healthcare providers and some of our hospitals, we accelerated the way we interacted with them and engaged with them through various digital solutions. So yeah, it drove the acceleration of making available and deploying digital solutions fed by data. That's great. What kind of data, Susan, have you seen be the most important for these kinds of transformations? Dan's been talking a little bit about you know a shift away from the conventional transactional systems in our enterprise to third-party data streams, and in some cases, uh, you know, digital data from websites or from from uh, devices and such. Have you seen a shift like that uh, in your organization? I think it's a mixture of both. Because if you think about the core transactional data or your master data of a company, this is the foundation. It has your people, your customers, your products, uh, everything about how your company's running. What we get from some of the real-time data that you get from websites, interactions, is how the data is being used. So how a customer, what they're doing with this, are they coming to our sites? You know, what is their interaction with this, similar with our associates? So it's really a combination of both types of data. Such a good point. So it's so easy for us to think about what's new and sexy, but uh, at the end of the day, it needs to add on the corpus of data and analytics that we already have to be meaningful and to be within the language of the business as it uses right now. Uh, such a good point. Yeah, I, you know, I, I continue to see that we people think that purchasing this data or this data that's available will solve the problem. But what they always need to come back to is how do we link it about the, with the corporate data? 
you know, the corporate customers, the people, the products. Yeah, I I love that. And frankly, it's interesting. When I was at Gartner, we used to put together sort of the 100 coolest use cases with big data. And what always struck me with those use cases were that it's not about big data. It's about interesting and innovative combinations of data, uh, i.e., as you said, Susan, merging some of the corporate data with new data types that you hadn't thought of doing. And that that brings something completely new that no one's done before. And that's a huge upside rather than just focusing on the big data. So, um, you know, among us three, and all the people listening, I suppose, we've been talking about real-time analytics and real-time data and how data is going to be the new oil for what seems like a long time. And I'm interested in both of your thoughts on whether 2021 is going to provide some of those breakout moments that actually help us to realize some of this vision. Uh, Thoughts, Susan, you want to start? Yeah, I I think it will, because I think we're going to still be in a lot of the same environment we were in last year. And real-time data will really be uh, a key to link with some of our core data for the company and really improve our interactions with our customers. Um, I believe, as you just mentioned, people expect personalization in their personal interactions each day, as well as business interactions. And behind them sits the foundation of data. Um, To get access to data on demand, it's required for a company to leverage that, to get the power from AI, ML, and other digital capabilities across the value chain. And when you go across the value chain, looking at your data applying advanced technologies on it, that's where you can really accelerate data-driven business decisions across the company. And then finally, evolving to a data on demand is a journey. And people really should think about setting bold aspirations, starting small, evolve and improve, and don't ever give up. Yeah, and I'll I'll just fill in there. Essentially, I I completely agree with the uh, importance of up-to-date and real-time data. Um, Joe, I think you were involved. Do you remember when we were looking at kind of forecasting out, uh, well, market data, essentially bringing that in and looking at it and mm-hmm. it changed so quickly. I mean, as soon as we sent something off to the executives, uh, new variables changed, something happened with the pandemic and we need to go back to the drawing board and, and do it all over again. I think the pandemic has really brought out that issue, especially on the supply chain side. I mean, we all remember the toilet paper, uh, Uh, incidents all over the world, which actually broke a perfectly good supply chain, uh, or a personal protective equipment where there actually was an issue with the supply chain. And yeah, this this need for uh, a a better functioning supply chain and more up-to-date data uh, is so important. And we've absolutely seen that with our clients as well, doing really cool things like police forces, food service providers and airports, for example. Well, I've been waiting for the year where it's the coolest job to be in data. So maybe this is it for all of us. Maybe we'll be the the toast of cocktail parties moving forward. Um, So as we wrap up this conversation, we've covered a lot of ground today. And Dan, I wonder if you could net this out with three big themes and your takeaways about how data is impacting the world as we know it in 2021. I mean, how is data impacting the world right now? A lot. I mean, just look at contact tracing. Um, it's, it's fascinating that that's essentially what it is using. It's, it's really powerful tools to look at data and see, uh, where people are meeting each other. And what's great to see is how companies are partnering on this, like Google and Apple, for example, 
or countries giving away their contract tracing app. I'm based here in Europe, and, and Finland, for example, has built an anonymous contract tracing app, which it's sharing with every other country. Then we can just move on to shared data and storytelling. Uh, everyone's an armchair epidemiologist, right? And everyone's an armchair politician, perhaps, with the U.S. election that has just passed. And uh, that's been really interesting. I think it's a first step of moving towards that. You know, it's a journey with data literacy. Many, many more people have started that journey. I think the next thing is we just have to learn how to agree on the common ground and focus in on the things we agree on more rather than always you know, focusing in on what polarizes us. So that's, I guess, the next step of that. And then, yeah, we've talked about alternative data. There was aerial photos outside of hospitals in Wuhan already back in August, September of last year, uh, together with internet searches from Baidu. That's just two examples of data. If we would have caught it earlier and reacted to those signals, uh, we would have been much more efficient. So I think there's still a lot more homework to do and still a lot more untapped potential. But that's just three examples of uh, data in this crisis and in 2021 and 2020 as well. Well, Dan, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Joe. It's a pleasure. And Susan, thank you for joining us. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Data Brilliant, brought to you by Click and hosted by me, Joe Dos Santos. Thank you, Susan and Dan, for reminding us what's going to make us successful in analytics in 2021. Embrace the new, but don't forget what you know. Focus on the business impact first. Build on your existing data and analytics rather than replacing it with fancy fads. And think first about your data supply chain and how it's going to enable every single user. This is what will make us all successful in 2021.